This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, what makes a great leader? Many aspire to leadership, but what does it take to be a really great leader? Today we hear from three top political and business leaders who share their insights and reflections on what makes truly great leadership. We start with former Australian Deputy Prime Minister, John Anderson. Now John had an extensive career in leadership in politics, and I asked John to reflect on how challenging public life really is. The whole thing's very challenging at a senior level. Uh, I don't think many Australians know just how tough it actually is. Mm. And of course I did many stints as acting Prime Minister. That's tougher still. Yeah. And you, I, I used to remember John Howard used to say to me when he was going, I'll, I'll leave the keys on your desk and he'd get <laughs> back, he'd say, I'll pick the keys up whenever. Uh, and it was when he picked the keys up, I'd often feel this sort of weight of responsibility lifting a bit. But you never knew what was going to happen. I was actually acting PM uh, on 9-11. Yes, that was September 11 terrorist attacks. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Was that one of the greatest challenges you had to face as a leader? It was certainly the time at which you stared into the abyss. We didn't know how serious it was going to be. It was the same week that ANSET failed, as a matter of fact. So I was already up to my eyeballs in policy issues of the first order. Mm -hmm. And then that happened. And I think it was a point at which I sort of... uh, realised that there are no guarantees in life and if you step up for something, then uh, if the unexpected happens, you can flunk it or you can keep going. Uh, Jumping off the bridge in the way that a certain Italian captain did when he rolled his uh, passenger liner over not so long ago is not the right option to exercise. Right, no, no, no. So how did you react then when you heard about the the 9-11 or the September 11 terrorist attacks? Oh, well, I think like every other Australian, disbelief at first. Uh, and then, the, you know, this is incredible. Is it real? What does it mean? The early advice was that it might very well have been the first of a series of intended rolling attacks that Australia could be a target. We now know, in fact, that there were meant to be more attacks. They just couldn't train enough pilots at the time quickly enough to follow through with their full intent. But it was an unnerving time because you you didn't know exactly what it meant. I was told very early on as acting PM at the time that it was almost certainly Osama bin Laden uh, and uh, his people behind it. That turned out, of course, to be true. Mm. Uh, And uh, such counter-terrorism arrangements as we had in the country in those days were all tripped into action. One of the big concerns initially was where is the Prime Minister? Is he safe? And then when he was found and was safe... Uh, how to get him home right. because the Americans closed all airspace for three days. Yep. Eventually he was flown by Air Force Two, which is identical to Air Force One, so you never know which one you all might right. be looking at, uh, <laughs> to um, uh, to Honolulu, as I recall, and then a Qantas 747 brought him home from there. Mm. So is leadership hard? It's very hard when you have to persuade, when you have to take people with you. In a democracy to lead, you need to be able to do three things. Work out where it is that you think you should be going. That's Mm -hmm. the vision thing. The vision, yep. You've got to be able to articulate it to others. You've got to be able to explain it in ways that are meaningful and relevant that highlight the problem and the solution. Uh, So that's uh, the second part of it, articulate the vision. The third part of it is that you must have about you the personal qualities that make others trust you, 
and believe you and want to work with you to achieve that vision. It's the only way it can be in a democracy because you don't command people. Mm. You have to but persuade now, them. But the massive problem that is emerging is that we are fragmenting as a people. Mm. The virtues, the civic glue that used to bind us together, they're all under attack. In an age of moral relativism, everyone's an island now, mm. so it's becoming much harder. And there will come a point, I simply assert this as a matter of fact, where if we continue to polarise, if we continue to fragment, if we continue to tribalise, democracy will not work anymore. Mm. Now, people are suspicious of Christians in public office. Do you think that your Christian faith has enhanced or detracted from your service of the Australian people? Oh, goodness, I hope it's... I hope. It would be devastating to me if you could point to evidence as to how it was a bad thing because it gave me a deep commitment to serve, the idea of trying to put self aside, doing my best for others. Now, I'm not saying everybody would have agreed with every policy that I supported or even advocated, but in terms of my motives, um, I would hope that they were honourable. And I'd also have to say that it's easy to point to people who've done the wrong thing in public life. But we've had countless examples of people in this in this country who have had clear... Fa- go, and look at the, go and look at your currency. The number of people who are commemorated on our, our dollar bills, on well, not dollar bills, but on our notes, yep. um, as great Australians who have made a magnificent contribution, it's staggering how many of them had deep Christian belief. Mm. Now, one of the problems, though, with the Christians in public office is that their Christian values are not shared values. So can you really serve people whom you disagree with? Oh, yes. You have to be able to. Good grief. At the heart of the Christian message is the idea that uh, Christ died for his enemies, Mm. for the people who put him there, who were sworn to, uh, uh, if you like, um, get rid of him. Yeah. So is it tempting then to not not serve people who didn't vote for you? Absolutely. Of course it is. We're all human. Sometimes love is something you do. Not, not, not you something you do feel. It. It's something you do despite your feelings. So do you think that Jesus was a good leader? Well, he's the model for good leadership, surely. Mm-hmm. Laid down his life for others, including his enemies, not just his friends. Uh, and that has become the, the model of service leadership that defined our culture for so long. Often people failed, no doubt about that. Uh, but uh, we revere some of the leaders in our own history precisely because they led for others, not for themselves. Eisenhower's a good example of that, President Eisenhower in America. He had to be persuaded to run, and he would not even sign his own nomination papers to run as President of the United States. Mm. But he allowed others to say, we want to be led by you, and then sought to serve. I admire him for that. John Anderson, former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. Today's big question is, what makes a great leader? And we continue to ask this question with two top business leaders, Dr Jenny George, CEO of Converge International and former Dean of the Melbourne Business School, and George Savides, long-serving CEO of Medibank. We were originally asking them big questions about power and if power corrupts. But this question also has implications for leadership. Now, I asked George Savides to respond to research which shows that people with more power tended to act more like selfish jerks. You know, when you get the power cord uh, opportunity of plugging yourself in as a leader and all the lights are on you and you have the authority to make a whole bunch of decisions around resources and people, um, you can think that it's all about you instead of the assignment that you've been asked to facilitate Mm. as a leader. 
Yeah. And if you get trapped in the it's all about you, uh, then this sort of myopia around self-interest starts to take over and the interests of others, even children who expect some candy, sort of get subordinated. Yeah, you can literally take candy from children if you think you're worth it, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are your thoughts, Jenny? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, there's a really interesting quote um, that a famous Hollywood actor uh, is particularly difficult to work with and one of his colleagues said, well... How would, what would you expect uh, if you've never heard the word no for 25 years? And I think that it can be very difficult actually to maintain a sense of uh, yourself as a person um, who, along with everyone else, uh, doesn't have any special entitlement if in fact everyone has all your life treated you with a sense of entitlement. So I think that that's a, a big part of it uh, and a big part of why power um, might corrupt. Mm. I think the other thing, and perhaps this goes to the question of uh, the socioeconomic groups, is it does depend on who you surround yourself with. So I think our behaviour is really um, quite clearly shaped by the people we choose to hang out with. And so if we hang out with people who all have the same sense of entitlement or the same background mm. expectations that we have, um, we can quickly acquire that. And even if you come from a quite a poor background, if you end up hanging out with rich people all the time, you actually, I think, take on the colour of your surroundings because you end up believing that that's the way that the world works and it becomes like a fish in water. You don't actually notice what you're swimming in anymore. Yeah, yeah. So uh, can you then lose touch with the real world then, so to speak? Yeah, I think you absolutely can if yeah. you're not careful. Yeah. So what you, George, you led to multi-billion dollar organisations. Um, was it something that you struggled with or was it an issue for you in trying to connect with the ordinary worker necessarily as you are in the, as a CEO role? Yeah, well, look, I, I think when you're sort of in the leadership role of, a, say, a corporation or an organisation, um, normally the number one priority is to get the mission done, the job done. Uh, and to do that, you need to mobilise a team of people, align them, uh, you know, get their uh, energy level to a sense of real uh, commitment, discretionary effort for the cause. So there's got to be a sense of purpose in why they're, you know, teaming up. And leaders tend to have to do that quite well, communicate that sense of purpose. And out of that comes a whole lot of energy and release to get on with the job of achieving the, you know, organisational goal or mission. If you start that journey totally distracted with the person in the mirror there's a whole lot of stuff that's not going to happen. Mm. Uh, the team's not going to get the direction they need or the support or encouragement. The resources will flow to the person who gets the biggest paycheck rather than the resource needs of the organisation. And what used to be a promise around trust, we trust you as leader to get the job done, trust got, gets breached, leader is compromising the role for self-interest and self-gain. And that's where power corrupts. Mm. when we get caught up with what's in the mirror rather than the mission that you've been given to uh, undertake as the leader. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Jenny? Is it, is it obviously, it's something to do with the, the self and your self-awareness and your self-perception, perhaps, but that, is that something that power can influence and change? Uh, I think it can. It depends. Firstly, I think that as a leader, there is a sense in which you inevitably need to feel somewhat separate from the people around you. And that's because I think you naturally are going to have to make decisions which are not going to be popular with every single person. And I think that if you uh, make really great friendships, it's very unlikely you'll make friendships with 
everybody. And therefore, there can be the potential that you'll end up with people that you are naturally closer to than others. And that could become uh, a judgment issue for making good decisions. So I think there's a sense in which uh, a leader may well, um, even from an ethical point of view, want to actually be a little bit detached uh, so that they can make good decisions. But then detachment itself brings with it challenges because when, when you're a little bit detached from the people in the organisation, then it becomes potentially a situation where you feel alone, but you also feel special or you feel on a pedestal mm. and trying to actually manage those two things uh, is actually quite a difficult task. And I think that's one of the things that leaders are challenged by and, and need to uh, maintain a really good balance with. You can't be one of the team in a really deep uh, a sense and yet you have to be part of the team in another deep sense and how to actually manage that mm. as a tension there. is a yeah. tension yeah, yeah. Now, but do you think that power changed you though Jenny I mean because you had a particular experience where you were in power and yeah. you sort of stepped away from that so yeah what was your uh, reflection can you sh share us what happened and sure. then your self-reflection on what happened yeah look I had a really interesting experience in that I was uh, dean of the Melbourne Business School so effectively CEO and then after a couple of years stepped down but stayed in the organization and I tell you what if you want to do a thought exercise on how, um, uh, how much are you letting power kind of run away with you? Think about what would happen if you had to go and work in the team that you lead as an ordinary team member, having been in leadership. How would your team react? How would you go? How would you react to a new leader? Um, all of those things are pretty challenging and it was a really interesting experience for me. Um, so I think in one sense, I'm, uh, there were certainly some learnings and there were some things that I realised um, I probably hadn't done as well. I, I realised lots of ways in which I hadn't been hearing about how people had been feeling and communication was something that um, had been quite challenging and, and certainly I got a sense of that when I stepped down. But on the other hand, I was able to step down um, without uh, being ostracised, so clearly things hadn't gone too badly <laughs> so you either. you hadn't burned too many bridges. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's interesting and you, you look at uh, prime ministers who go back to being backbenchers, it's a really difficult job and I have to say not always well done. Mm. <laughs> um, and if you, you think about that and you think, if I was in a really, you know, fairly senior position of power, uh, could I actually step down from it and stay with the team and understand how to do that and potentially still support the new leader? Uh, I think if you can be in a mindset where you actually realistically think that's possible, you're probably balancing things reasonably well. Mm. So is there anything that helped you particularly in that tr transition? Um, I think having uh, good support around me. So I think that one of the best things you can do is have people who basically uh, tell you when you're being a bit up yourself um, and help you have a bit of a sense of balance. And I think if you have that all the way through, then you're probably... Um, not behaving too badly, mm. uh, and that will... It would mean, as George said, that your perception on the mirror is actually more accurate, perhaps, than the uh, rose-coloured one, perhaps, that you might otherwise have created. I think so, and honestly, I think um, being part of a church is a really helpful part of that for me. Um, firstly, I think in churches, you're alongside people who don't so much care what your job is and so they're treating you um, as an equal all the time and I think that's a really helpful thing when you have a whole community of people who just take you for you um, and I think the other thing is that you are generally meeting people from whole different walks of life as well and I think that um, 
means that you don't get quite the same sense of being insulated in a particular group with the same sense of entitlement. And I found particularly um, as I started earning a little bit more money, continuing to be alongside people who really didn't have much money uh, makes me much more conscious and not just take it for granted. Mm. Now, questions just come in from our text line from our live audience. Uh, I'll direct it towards you, George. Um, it says, do you think big corporations understand the problem of power corrupting? Yeah, well, that's been the big topic in the Hayon Royal Commission, hasn't it? Mm. Yeah. With the, uh, the Royal Commission into Financial Services. And look, in the same way that a leader can be blind to their own behaviour in terms of self-orientation and self-interest, I call it gravity, um, organisations can have the same problem. If they get it from the leadership and the culture of, from above. They can become, uh, through activity that's saying that this is success, it may be revenue performance or some other organisational goal, sales or whatever, they get so obsessed with rewarding and celebrating certain successes around business goals um, and they sometimes uh, create over time a a blindness or an insensitivity or a numbness to some of the impacts of what they do with customers or the broader community. And that institutional blindness is well-researched. It's real. You know, we can have great leaders, people that I've met many times in other places who are people of, you know, good, good heart, who are so busy doing the busy, boards on top of them, shareholder organisations pressing for goals and, re and returns. And they sort of forget the tentacles of reality that reach out into the land of those that they impact, customers and the society. And then it's possible over time for those that, that numbness to do harm to customers and the community mm. and to, to not pick that up until there's a Royal Commission <laughs> and it's played back at you and you ask, do you guys have any values or you know, can you please explain <laughs> yeah. why you do this? So that's how So that is that something you were aware of in your time, certainly at Medibank and other CEO roles? Yeah, you've got to constantly work. Look, I think the, what I look for, and I, we've just heard it in the way that Jenny explained her situation, I think the health check in leadership, whether it's at a governance level or a CEO level, a leadership team, is how much humility do we see? You know, I was listening to Jenny, and I heard a lot of humility there in terms of being earth, understanding uh, the sense of equality amongst her peers, uh, that even though she's got a senior role, that role's not about her. It's about what she's been trusted to, uh, to deliver in terms of her leadership role into the organisation. And so I'm constantly having, you know, when I, when I, even my governance boards today, what am I looking for from leadership? Is there a reasonable dose of humility? Mm. Why? Because humility is about being earth to reality, uh, where you see yourself not being the person of all the answers, but in fact you're investing in your team and through that creativity that you get team mobilising for the solutions that your customers and your society want from your organisation. So, um, you know, we saw this in the book, uh, Jim Collins's book, Good to Great. Good to Great, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like he did incredible research around large corporations over longitudinal studies over many years about why they were high-performing, the ones that he picked out that were high-performing. And everyone thought that, you know, it's going to be trademarks, intellectual property, distribution channels that had significant competitive advantage, raw material advantages. No, it wasn't any of that. It distilled down to the uh, characteristic and makeup of the leader, which he described as level five, which was not the captain leader that shoots all the goals, it was more the coach leader, the one that looks after the team, 
so that the team can be successful and the team with their teams and the teams with their teams. And so this uh, more humble, uh, more invested leader who when things go wrong, Collins would say, they would look in the mirror and ask themselves, what am I doing wrong? Mm. And when things were going great, they would look through the window into the organisation and say, how great are my people Mm. and celebrate their efforts. So it wasn't about them necessarily. It wasn't about them. I don't think power is bad on its own. Like it's like, is money bad? It's, it's that kind of question. It's what you do with it or, or how it, it sort of takes over from a balanced outlook and how it corrupts trust. So, you know, if, if, if you receive the assignment and you're empowered as a leader from a governance board or whoever puts you into that role, it is a position of trust. And you know, normally when you're given the power, you're given uh, an outline of the task to be done, the mission. And you know, leadership was never about personal ambition. I know that we write about it, read about it, mm. see a lot of stuff about personal ambition. But leadership was never about that. It was always about the mission. So it's and service rather than sort of self-interest. Service. You know, as Jesus talks about this with his disciples, he said, look, even the Son of Man came to serve. So don't even worry about who's going to be the first or the second and where you're going to sit and all this stuff. That's all about being corrupted by this drug of power and importance. Your strongest significance comes when you give power away. Trust the team and the team delivers the mission. Mm. And they're looking for you to care for them. That's the role of a leader. Care for your team. Articulate where we're going. Give a sense of purpose to the work ahead so that the sacrifice is worth it on that journey and then we achieve greater good. But sometimes, as we see, leaders get caught in the mirror, caught in the trap, and it's all a bit of a drug. But I think that that only happens or it only works when the leader genuinely believes there's a bigger cause. I think if you see really successful leaders who've been humble... They've either uh, believed that God was uh, bigger than them and that they were accountable to God, or they've had a purpose and a passion. I mean, you look at Nelson Mandela, uh, he wasn't about him, he was about something bigger. I think that sort of humility is extraordinarily rare in, in a leader with as much power as Mandela anyway, but I think it comes with an understanding that you are really quite small in comparison to something much larger that you're serving. Mm, mm. Yeah, so finally, so if you're struggling then to find a purpose bigger than yourself, it's hard to, to go beyond the mirror, so to speak. I think so, yeah. Mm. So is there a tendency for leaders to want to use power to lord it over others? No, very um, natural. I yes. think if you're given power, uh, there is a natural tendency to want to use it both to be in control, to make decisions, and to make your own life more comfortable yeah. and easy. So it's very tempting to start this vision of leadership then. Yeah. yeah. Is that something that you've experienced, is this the, the temptation to sort of lord your power over others? Not particularly, I'm going to say, and then people listening to this who've worked with me might disagree, but no, I, I, I try really hard not to um, because I think it's really an ugly expression of a person uh, and I want to try and be uh, a, a much 
more beautiful expression. Particularly, I keep coming back to, there's a passage from the book of Philippians in the Bible where uh, Paul says to the disciples, have this mind among yourselves that was in Christ Jesus and talks about Jesus and how he humbled himself. And I think that's such a beautiful picture and it's what we're called mm. to that I, I very much have tried to do that. Mm. Um, so that resonates for you in your leadership style. You, you connect with the example of Jesus in humbling himself as a servant leader, so to speak? It's certainly something I try to keep in mind as much of the time as I can, yeah. So, Jenny, isn't this idea of Jesus' kind of servant leadership here like a nice idea but a bit out of place in the modern business world? No, I think it's uh, quite um, applicable and I think it works in practice. Um, I think uh, there's certainly, you know, academic research done, uh, done on it as well um, and it is perfectly possible for a modern corporation to have servant leadership if people choose that uh, as the style that they want to use. But isn't it a bit weak? No. A, a servant leader? Uh, no, not at all. I think the interesting thing is the power that you have from the position that you have uh, doesn't go away, actually. The question is how to use it. And if you use it to serve others, um, that doesn't mean that you don't have power. You still have the power. It's not weakness at all. You're just using it in a particular way with a particular mindset. So you can still make hard decisions as a servant, George? Yeah, look, um, I've spent a lot of time with search firms in the last 10 years uh, for CEOs and chair roles, etc. You were looking for roles, were you? No, <laughs> no, I've been... Well, yeah, we're appointing. <laughs> oh, right, OK, sorry, and, not for yourself. Yeah, right, no, yeah. no. And, and so in speaking to them, I, you know, you get close to their world, the, the search firms... You know what, the conversation that keeps coming up, I said, you know, what are you looking for as a, as a consultant search firm leader who's bringing a candidate list to us? And they said, well, one of the filters we use, these are several firms, tier one firms, and they're, they're constantly they're saying, we're looking for, one of our filters is humility. I said, well, and you've been talking about the word servant. You can bring those two words together, can't you? It's the same characteristic. And, and so, you know, egotistical chest beating, I've got all the answer type leaders, alpha males, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, it's no longer what people are looking for. And that's not your, what you're looking for at the top of no, big business no, in, in Australia. You will not engage and unlock the talent of a large and complex organisation with a leader that is self-sufficient. It's just not going to work. I think people get a bit off track when they start looking at the big star CEOs and thinking that that's the way it's done. I think they're the exceptions. What they don't see is the hundreds, millions possibly, of businesses that crash and burn with the narcissistic CEO. And the very few that we still see are actually exceptions. The majority of corporations mm. succeed because they have humble, uh, competent and... Um, leaders who are really great at building a team. Mm. So there we have it. Some insights and reflections on leadership and what makes a great leader. So let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to this big question. What makes a great leader? From Philippians 2, 5 to 7. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So Jesus exemplifies humility, the key to being a really great leader. And Jesus is possibly the best example of leadership of all. 
I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our leaders who shared today, John Anderson, Jenny George, and George Savides. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions.